Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Secrets of Story podcast. We're back. We are back. I'm James Kennedy. And I'm Matt Bird. And for the first time, we are not in the same room. Yeah, that's true. I know that you folks at home think that Matt and I just live in a dorm together and we kind of are in a bunk bed and we just kind of roll out together in our matching pajamas. But it's actually not the case. We both have our own families, our own lives. It's kind of like a hard day's night, right? Or the monkeys. Um, Yeah, no, here we are. We are social distancing. I am in Evanston, Illinois. James is in Chicago, Illinois. The two cities have a vicious rivalry. We decided we can't dare cross the city lines anymore. That's the first I've heard of that. How are you enjoying coronavirus, James? uh, It's fine. So I am very excited about tonight's topic. Appropriately to our situation right now of of physical distancing from one another. My broader point has to do with isolation. And it's congruent with your, you have this thing of believe, care, and invest. And since it kind of builds off of that, could you just quickly, I know we talked about in the Parker PV House episode, but just if everybody watches this, listens to this episode alone, just give them a quick rundown of what Believe, Care, and Invest is about. In my book, I talk about what you really need to do in the first 10 pages of your story is you need to get us to believe in the reality of your character, believe your character is a real person. You need to get us to care about your character's situation, usually through some sort of suffering or embarrassment. And you need to get us to invest in the character. You need to get convince us that this character can solve the book's problems, that we can invest our hopes and dreams in this character, that they're worth caring about, they're worth hoping that this character will solve this problem. And then last episode, you tried adding a fourth, you tried adding eavesdrop, that we had to go into their head a little bit in those first 10 pages as well. And now you're adding a fifth. Yes, the eavesdrop is like, you know, we need to be able to read their minds, whether it's direct dialogue to the self, like in a book. Like, uh, And I guess this is more with a book, but the voiceover Raising Arizona works. So, but I have another thing that I thought of, which is isolate. And so what do we do alone when nobody's watching? There has to be a scene early on, whether it's a book or a movie, in which it's just the hero. I've listened to all of our old episodes and I realized I talk about Star Wars and Harry Potter too much, but I do it because these are things that everybody knows about. So I'm going to do it again. I don't know if we truly bond with Luke Skywalker, to go back to this old saw, until he's, we don't really bond with him until he's no longer hanging out with his aunt and uncle. He's no longer hanging out with the robots. He goes out and he looks at those double suns and the music swells. That's when we really feel like, oh, we're on his side. Similarly, when we meet Ray, she's alone. She doesn't say a word at all. And when she's sitting at home making that bread for herself, you are so on her side. Uh, Meg in Wrinkle in Time starts out alone. Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games starts out alone. Curly Starling, when we first see her, she starts out alone. Arthur Dent uh, wakes up alone. We're alone with Harry Potter briefly. He removes Very but, briefly. Yeah, yeah but here's the thing. I mean, like, he, for, like, uh, one paragraph. But, but and that, is, that, that ant is yelling through the Because he removes but does not kill a spider on his sock. So it already do, does, like, the save the cat. If it started out with a kitchen scene of the Dursleys all hanging out and then Harry walks in, like that's a totally different vibe since we start with him and then he enters into the jerseys like we feel more on his side and these these are just tiny little decisions but they make a world of difference i I don't think we would be as much on harry's side if we saw the jerseys hanging out and then he just walked into the room and we had never met him before Um, i talk about in the book i talk about the notion of the prep scene it helps us know who is going to be the hero of the scene regardless of who is the hero of the book it helps us know who's going to be the hero of the scene if we see one character sort of prep for that scene and know like okay this is what i want out of the scene this is what i'm hoping for and then we know like okay this is the character i'm going to be tracking so 
you know, I guess the Harry Potter in this brief moment we have. That's all it takes. So it can be subtle. Then it can, be it subtle. can that can, that's sort of like a prep scene. It's kind of like, you know, a little moment of like, okay, here's what I'm hoping will happen today. Boom. He's out of the cupboard. He is in with his family a quarter of a page after we meet him. Yeah, well, we're talking about subtle matters of craft in this. There is a power also in observing someone alone. We credit one's behavior when they're alone as being closer to the true nature of the person, like their unnoticed nobility, the little humiliations that are born without complaint, their secret honor. Like you talk about secret honor at one point in your blog, right? I do. Yeah. And the book, I think. Yeah. I think that secret honor is huge. I think that it, this is true of prose even more so than screenwriting. I think the privilege of being in somebody's head, the privilege of knowing somebody's thoughts, to know that there's more going on in their head than the, the rest of the world can see. I think it's one of the great values of literature is finding out there is what you can see of the world and then there's more that's going on inside somebody. And you can do that in screenwriting. You have to do that in screenwriting. But obviously, it's easier to do in literature. And it's one of the number one reasons people like to read. People love to read because they love to see that there's more to people than they would see externally. And um, we, I actually brought up this point before when Parker was on the show, but we cut it. But when we brought it up last time, uh, Parker said, when we see Luke alone, he, when we see anybody alone, they're very vulnerable. And when we see Luke, he's not just kicking a rock around and saying, oh, shucks, nothing ever goes right for me. He's not complaining. He's, he's doing something more positive. He's yearning. He's wondering. He's looking to something bigger. So maybe the idea is like isolate hopefully or isolate positively. You feel like only you know him. But he's looking at the sons and saying, baby, I can do it. I know that I have it in me. And that, that is what bonds us to him. And it would be very easy if you're writing a screenplay, you'd be tempted to skip that scene or cut it. Because there's nobody else in it, and you can't write dialogue for it, and you can't write, Luke looks at the suns and we feel awesome. This happens in musicals. We have a scene where somebody looks out in the distance and they sing their song. I think they call it like the I want song, right? Yeah, uh, um, in this movie, it, certainly. So what do you think? Do you think Isolate and Eavesdrop make it into the same level as Believe, Care, and Invest? Or no. the, like as things that are necessary? You don't think it's no. necessary to have access to your thoughts or to isolate them at, at one point? No, I don't. I think that when I read people's books or when I examine the great works of literature, I feel like the three, I'm not saying that these are the only three things you should do, but I feel like the three things that are absolutely necessary to get me to love something is to believe Karen and Fest. And I feel like I can love things where there is no isolation. I can love things where there is no eavesdropping. Certainly, almost every play, there is no eavesdropping. You know, musicals are very different. Musicals have the I Want song. But if you watch a play like, you know, I don't know, Dinner at Eight, <laughs> if you're watching a play like just about any play, there's not going to be a lot of isolation. That mm -hmm. I think that the nature of drama is drama is about interpersonal interaction. And if you can't tell your story entirely through interpersonal interaction, that is a requirement. You have to be able to tell your story entirely through interpersonal No, I disagree. Interaction. I disagree. I think it depends on the medium, because if you try to tell your story entirely through interpersonal reaction, interaction and it's a novel, you're leaving such a gigantic tool unused that the reader is going to feel the lack and it's going to feel oddly cold to them. Yeah, it's funny. Even the play I wrote has isolation. You know, I mean, the, also, the, I, Shakespeare has soliloquies. I yeah, mean, true. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Even in drama, even on even on stage, is isolation, now you're going to have me looking for it everywhere and looking for where it's not. I'm certain, I mean, let's look at Toy Story. Is there isolation in Toy Story? When we meet Woody, 
I don't feel like there's ever a moment when we have isolation with Woody until maybe a third of the way or half the way through the movie. I, can't, I don't remember it well enough to say. So I, I guess what I'm kind of driving towards is that there might be a couple essential things. Let's say believe, care, and isolate are like close to essential. But then there's also a bunch of heuristics or, or kind of like little tricks kind of on the level of save the cat that you can get to care, get somebody to care about the hero. And they don't have to be in every single one, like maybe believe, care, and invest do. But I, I, I have a bunch of other little things that occurred to me from seeing a bunch of movies, reading a bunch of books that seem effective. You don't have to use them, but they might be a tool if you're like finding, like, I can't get anybody to care about my character. And, there, and one of the ways I came up with this, like I have five of them in my mind. And one, it came up from, there's a point that you made on your blog called High Five a Black Guy. Uh, yes. Could you please explain that? Well, so I used to do something on the blog many, many years ago where I call it, had the first 15 minutes project where I was trying to figure out various ways that writers would get us on the side of their character in the first 15 minutes. And, you know, some of them were things that you would expect and some of them were things that you would not expect until I looked at them. And the first four movies I looked at were Silence of the Lambs, The Fighter, Casablanca, and The 40-Year-Old Version. And I suddenly realized something I had not expected at all. And that's that right away in Silence of the Lambs, she's running, like you say, she's isolated, she's running. And then she comes into FBI headquarters and she's sort of surrounded by these like big burly black guys who are bigger than her. And then she sees a black woman her size and she high fives the black woman. We will later find out very briefly that this is her roommate, but it just seems totally random that she just walks up to this one black person, high fives her and then keeps going, does not exchange a word with her. And I quickly, and then then I was looking at the fighter, the Christian Bale, Mark Wahlberg movie that I was a big fan of. And sure enough, Christian Bale is going around the neighborhood and suddenly runs into a black guy, high fives him, and just keeps going. Black guy gets no lines. And <laughs> and then I was like, okay, well, basically, of course, Casablanca is that was the movie that invented the whole concept of the black best friend. And then I saw that at the beginning of 40-year-old version, he was leaving and suddenly is all pally with his black neighbors upstairs who never appear in the movie again. And I'm like, okay, this is the number one thing I'm learning is that you should high-five a black guy, is that you should suddenly meet a black person who is not going to be part of the movie, who you're never going to see again, and show that your hero, your white hero, is cool with black folks just long enough to get that established, get that out of the way, then go on back to the white folks. And I found a lot of fun things like that when I was looking at those. And then none of that made it into the book. And it's going to make it into the next book if the next book ever gets published. So basically, you bring a person of color in, you use them just to legitimize the white people, and then you dismiss them as quickly as possible. That's yeah. the... And why why does that happen? Like, is it, you, think, you want to show they're down? Yeah, I think that, yeah, you want to show that your hero is cool, that your hero is not one of those white people, but, but you don't want to have to actually write a black person, because it's like that requires you to actually inhabit a voice other than your own. If you're a white writer, you just want to go like, oh, my hero is down, he's cool, he's woke. But then you're like, okay, now let's move on. <laughs> now, originally, the woman, Cassie Lemons, actually, who just directed Harriet and directed Eve's Bayou many years ago, which was excellent, plays that black woman who high-fives Clarice Starling. And she originally was in the movie more as Clarice's Quantico roommate. But then they basically cut her character down to just someone who shows up and high-fives Clarice Starling and then moves on. That was a good example of lots of stuff that I found then and that I will resume my search for now that I'm working on the new book of these little tricks that are just flat-out tricks. They're not like, I have discovered the deep humanity of my character and I will share that humanity with the world. They're just like, what tricks can I do to get people on my hero's side that are cynical? What cynical yeah, little okay. tricks can I use? Ever since you told me that, I have noticed that in almost every movie I've seen. 
yeah. like the high five of black guy. It, it is absolutely insidious. I mean, it's it, it is. I mean, we have to be very clear here. It's a racist trope. Yeah. Um, it, it's a bad, like ridiculous thing for movies to do to like consume non-white identity like that. One of the reasons it didn't make it into the book is that it called attention to the fact that I was only using white stories as my <laughs> examples. And it called attention to the fact that, you know, this was advice I was giving people sort of on the assumption that you were not writing about a minority hero and you were presumably not a minority writer. And mm-hmm. obviously I didn't want to limit my book to being, hey, white writers, here's good advice for writing your white hero that I pulled from reading a bunch of white stories and looking at a bunch of white movies. And I didn't want to do that. So here, in the same way that Blake Snyder had that very absolutely cynical idea of like, oh, have the hero do something kind, like save a cat at the beginning. That will make you like them. That's a bit of cynical advice. And then it got overused probably a million times. Like even in, I don't know if The Incredibles came out before or after Save the Cat, but Mr. Incredible literally saves a cat out of a tree at the beginning. So I was thinking, what are other things that are like that, that I've seen. I'm going to call them the five E's. So this is a constellation of optional techniques to use a la carte that aren't as fundamental as believe, care, and invest. You don't have to do them. You don't have to do all of them or even any See, of them. Even you are still saying believe, care, invest. You're not saying believe, care, invest, eavesdrop, isolate. It doesn't come trippingly off the tongue, does it? You're... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's simply a, a marketing thing for you. <laughs> I'm simply being respectful to you in your lair. I see. You have to be respectful to me because I have not invited you into my house this time. You have, <laughs> I, It's like the Lost Boys. I have not surrendered my power to you by inviting you into my house. Um, so here are the five E's. And I could be totally off base on this, but this is just like me walking around today thinking about it. It's eat, exercise, economic activity, enjoy, and emulate. I like it. The first one is eat. I remember when I was growing up in my basement, my mom had this like kind of like artsy craftsy kind of diorama of like a fake bakery that was like very small. And in it, there was a pie, but it was like in a bottle cap and it was like a fake (laughs) pie in a bottle cap that was part of it. And I remember being so obsessed with that pie, feeling at the same time that I obviously could not eat that pie. It was a piece of clay. It's a, and yet wanting to eat the pie. And just like the idea of like a, a small representation of a food, there's something <laughs> very satisfying about it. I don't, do, do does, am I like hitting the mark anywhere for you? Does this, like, if you see a very small I, representation of food, doesn't it make you feel something that's like adjacent to hunger, but it's not hunger, but it, it's satisfying? I think that this is the very definition of a theoretical idea that is divorced from all reality, James. You're you're literally saying, isn't a simulacrum more satisfying than actual reality? I've, I'm speaking to Foucault or Derrida. Okay. Uh, or, right. or Zuzek. There's something satisfying about watching somebody eat in a work of art. Oh, yeah, that's totally true. Something like The Hunger Games. People read those books, they're going like, oh, man, I'm reading this book to get down and dirty with the mankind at its worst. But people love those books because the descriptions of the banquets, always in books. Like, I always, when I give people notes, like, yep, you're describing tasty food. This is good. This is what people want to read. And when people describe untasty food or boring meals, I mean, as a general rule when you're writing you know, boring, bored heroes always equal bored readers. But like a hero glumly eating tasteless food is something that is painful to read. <laughs> like, uh, no, that, that that can work very well in a comedic way. There's a part in a Hitchhiker's, one of the Hitchhiker's books in which they're, they're talking about like a bad sandwich that Arthur is eating and it's very funny <laughs> and good. I disagree with that advice. That for comedy, okay. 
but um, yeah, you're right. So like in Harry Potter, we're talking about the various feasts in the Great Hall. Um, yeah, that's very satisfying to read. What's that? Yeah, people love those feasts. They love yeah, them. Ray, when we meet her, she eats pretty quickly. She eats that weird bread that she makes. And I feel so on her side when she makes that bread and eats it. Anna, well, it's a great it's a great believe Karen best moment because yeah. a number one way to get us to believe in the world or believe in the reality of a character is to show them doing something we don't quite understand to show that like, Oh, there must be more to this that they're not telling me about. I'm trying to understand how this bread machine works and it makes this perfect little sphere of bread or whatever it is. <laughs> and it's like, I, and this is something George Lucas was brilliant at. And then JJ Abrams picked up on from Lucas is going like, okay, what was that? I guess in this world, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, there's yeah. this whole world here that that is clearly the creator has given more thought. At one point I said on my blog, know more than you show. This author know, knows more than they're showing about how this world works and what's going on. And that gets us to really believe, oh, this must be real. If this was just something the writer had thought of, then they would explain to us what they were thinking of. But this must be a real world where there's stuff they're not even telling us about. And you care because she's suffering. You care because she's living on the edge of ruin. And you invest because she's she's solving her problem. She's doing such cool stuff. She is, you know, she's such a capable hero. The Laura Ingalls Wilder book, it's the first in the Little House in the Prairie books, A Little House in the Big Woods, has no plot. And it's just one long oral fantasy. Uh, of, <laughs> I don't know if you've read it lately, but there's I'm no not. plot. It's just talking about like, well, we took the syrup and we poured it on the snow and it made this delicious, you know, kind of, you know, ice creamy kind of stuff. And, and then this is how we made this delicious food and then we ate it. This is how we made this <laughs> delicious food and then we ate it. And that is enough. We sometimes prefer the simulacrum to the real thing. If you had poured syrup on some snow you said eat this i'd be like Ugh, no <laughs> no but like in, in little house <laughs> in the big woods it sounds great it, it's so um yeah yeah it's it's so the idea that i'm talking about right here is powerful enough to carry an entire book and have no story at all so let's use this powerful thing to get us to bond with the character anna of frozen she's like singing like i want to stuff some chocolate in my face and, and, and she's like you know eating we love dale cooper because of his love of coffee and pie yeah. Uh, first time we see uh, Deckard, Harrison Ford's character in Blade Runner, he's eating noodles at a stall. This really bonds us with the world. It makes us feel that we that this character is not some kind of signifier floating around and has no relation to anything. He is a flesh and blood person who has a Catholic sacramental, you know, relationship to the world around. You know, not when you said that Catholicism is better than Protestantism on your blog. Right, right. I talked about how real. and Catholicism is all about objects. It's a religion of objects that, you know, when you reject Protestantism, it's hard to show that on screen. But when you reject Catholicism, you can throw your cross away. You can throw you can throw your beads away. You can throw all kinds of stuff away. When you consume Catholicism, you actually are uh, you get to consume the actual body of Christ, it's awesome, and or reject it or throw it up like in Angela's Ashes where he gets his first communion and he throws it up, which sort of prefigures the whole book. It's great. And yeah, eating is so meaningful in that way. When we first meet Quint in Jaws, the crusty guy who dies at the end and he's the captain of the boat, and y'all know me, know what I do for a living. And he's like scratches his nails down the board to get everybody's attention, right? And he's right. making his whole speech about how he can catch the fish, but everybody's going to have to ante up, put your businesses on a pay-in basis. But he's eating when he's doing it. And he's eating these crackers in this very aggressive way. And I have a feeling we wouldn't be on his side quite as much if he wasn't eating. Because yeah. in that act of eating, there's a, there's a kind of contempt in it of like nobody else in this room is eating, but he's eating. <laughs> 
but it's is also, the real person. He is the most real person there because he's, he's eating, and that's what real there. people do. Similarly, I, 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 in I, I, Wrath of Khan and in the reboot of Star Trek, during the Kobayashi Maru, Kirk, played by both you know uh, Shatner and Christopher Pine, are eating an apple at that time. Because <laughs> just they're the one real person in the scene. They're, and, and somehow when they're eating an apple, you kind of are on their side. And now there's ways which you can eat, which makes you utterly not on their side. In one of the Lord of the Rings movies, I think it's the second one, the king, Denethor, has sent his son into battle to go to Minas Tirith on a hopeless battle. And as his son and all of his people are getting slaughtered, he is sitting there and eating in a very gross way. And he, he's, do you remember this? And he's like, No, I don't remember this at all. Oh, I just watched all these movies again with my girls. And, and so, like, we're seeing them getting slaughtered, and it's cutting back and forth to him, like, cutting and, like, smacking his lips, and the meat is going to his mouth. Um, so there's a way to also use it in a very alienating way. Let's just put it this way well, eating I, is an extremely powerful thing to use. I'm not sure if I've told this story on the podcast before. If I have, I'll cut it. But when I went to film school, they made us take a directing the actor class. They made us act for the directing the actor class, which is something I've not had to do a whole lot, but that was part of it. Like, if you're going to be directing actors, you have to actually do some acting. And it was indeed very instructive. And so what I found was me and another director were supposed to act in a scene together and he was supposed to show up and we were supposed to rehearse the scene before class. And he, as always, showed up super late and he did not show up in time for us to rehearse the scene and then get some lunch and then do it. And I'm like, well, we keep doing the scene. It's terrible. Neither of us know how to act. I can't act. This is horrible. Now you haven't given me enough time to rehearse. And now I have no choice but to eat my sandwich while we're doing this scene. And I discovered that suddenly I could act. Suddenly, <laughs> the first time in my life. I could act because I was eating a sandwich and suddenly the whole scene came to life and my performance came to life because I wasn't sitting there acting. I wasn't yeah. sitting there going like, okay, I am an actor. Here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm saying. Here's what right. I'm expressing. I was focused on the sandwich and I was tossing off my lines and I was just reacting to what he was saying in real time. And instead of pre-planning everything, and it was hugely instructive to me as a writer-director, which I was at the time, in terms of like, oh, okay, always put stuff in their hands, always give them a sandwich, always keep the actor's mind off of their lines, off of what they're doing, off of acting. That was what I learned. So, yeah, I think we talked enough about eating, but just like, it's very powerful. Let's use it to bond people to the character. It might be something that might be worthwhile. So there's five E's. We've done one of them. Exercise is the second one. So we saw this in Silence of the Lambs. The first thing we see is Clarice running through the woods. Right, and you talk about this. Uh, this is actually on the checklist. Yeah. One of my 122 questions on the checklist is: Is the hero engaged in some sort of physical activity when we first meet them? And that would include eating, but it would usually include some sort of exercise, like Clarice running. I mean, obviously, Luke isn't engaged in physical exercise. Actually, oddly enough, the the, the first thing that the, he says is not like I'm going to go to Tashi Station and fix the power converters. The key's walking out to the sand crawler, and Aunt Bruce says, "Luke," and he runs over to her. He's the one That's person the in the scene who's running. Uh, okay, a it's a stretch. It's a stretch. However, it's an accumulation of small, de subtle details that sometimes works. If he had just walked over to her, I think yeah. that wouldn't have been as good of a choice, and we would not have been as invested in him as somebody who he hears his name and he runs. I'll give it to you a little bit. Harry Potter, also not a lot of exercising. There's a lot of examples of not exercising, but doing well, something physical, whether I'm it's eating, saying, whether it's running. Right? Yeah. A la carte. A la carte. Exactly. Not... We've arrived at the a la carte portion of the menu. You pick one, pick two. You don't have to do all these. Nobody is going to be, nobody is going to be doing eating, exercising, <laughs> economic activity. If you're doing all five of these at the same time, you're doing something wrong. In fact, though, um, at the beginning of The Force Awakens, Ray does do all of them. 
she eats pretty early on. She exercises. The first thing we do, we see her do, she's rappelling down in a Star Destroyer. And economic activity, one of the first things we see her do is sell something. She's selling the, the stuff that she, she got. So, I mean, within like literally three minutes, she's eating, exercising, and economic activity. And the same thing with Luke. Luke is economic activity. He's buying robots. There's something about the exchange of money for goods or services that binds us to the world, almost in the same way that, that eating does. This world is real. This world is bigger than our hero who is in it. Yeah. You, you want to talk and about our, that? And our hero has to live in the world. Our hero is not someone who has everything taken care of for them. Our hero is someone who has to make decisions, has to buy and sell, put a value on things. Things in this world have a value. They don't have unlimited value. It's hard to read a lot of the books of the 19th century where even you know, even little women, you're reading little women and you're like, okay, you know, these women are, the first scene is like, we can't afford to give each other Christmas presents because we're so poor. And you're like, oh, you know, I feel for that. I care for that. But then they're like, Okay. Oh, there's our maid. There's our maid slash housekeeper slash cook who is cooking all the meals for Christmas and being our maid and our housekeeper. And it's like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa back up, back up. <laughs> Explain <laughs> to me how this works. You can't afford to give your each other Christmas presents, and you're four women who you aren't allowed to work because you're expected to just focus on domestic duties, and yet you have a maid and a cook to do your domestic duties for you. Like that doesn't make any sense. You read all these 19th century books. Certainly, it's the exact same thing in Pride and Prejudice, where they keep talking about how poor they are, and yet they've got servants who are taking care of all their stuff. It's hard to read those books today because we prefer people without servants. We prefer people who are having to make uh -huh. hard economic decisions out in the real world. We don't have to wonder like, where is this? money coming from there's nothing more alienating to a modern reader than to read a book like these 19th century books and go like where's this money coming from yes ex exactly and the reason why it's a genuine piece of insight and why it's interesting is because it's a granular specific thing it's not like a broad principle you know it's something we could immediately put into effect and say oh well then i have my character you know, running instead of, you know, laying in bed and looking up at the ceiling. It could be them lifting weights. It could be them, you know, repelling down a Star Destroyer. These... I think that having sex is not good. I think Why? that beginning with a character having sex, because I think we don't identify with that. I but think we do. That... Oh, Bridesmaids begins that way. But, well, I think that we identify with her. We identify with her when she wakes up in the morning and is terrified of not looking good for the man and sneaks yeah. out of bed to put on her makeup and then sneaks back into bed as if she just yeah. woke up with her makeup on. We do not identify at all with it. I mean, I guess we identify with the extent that she does not enjoy the sex. That's something yeah. we can identify with. Well, you're, you're right. You're right. <laughs> But You're identifying right. with someone enjoying sex, I think that that's something that uh, not, not, not that common. So we got eat, exercise, economic activity. People are buying or selling. We've talked about that. Indiana Jones wants to idle only for economic reasons. Um, yep. You know, we're going to sell it. So my fourth one. Wait, no, is, that's not true. He doesn't want to sell it. Indiana yeah, he does. doesn't want the idol for it. He wants to, he wants to put it in a museum all the, right away from the beginning of the movie. The Marcus that is totally says, not true. Marcus says, we'll give you your usual price. He's getting paid to, he's but getting he's going to, yeah, but he's not going to sell it. I mean, he's not going to say no, like, he's not, not going to sell it to the highest bidder. The museum is definitely going to get it. Look, I got these pieces. They're good pieces, Marcus. Look, Indiana. Yes, the museum will buy them as usual. No questions asked. Yes, they are nice. No, no, but he, uh, but he got paid. Is the thing. He, yeah, he he's getting paid by the museum looking. to find things for the museum. He is an employee of the museum. He is an employee of the university. 
and the university presumably owns the museum. I don't know what the economic situation is. I'm sure everything you do for the museum conforms to the International Treaty for the Protection of Antiquities. But this definitely isn't something, he's not like Ray, he's not like rounding stuff up that he can then sell for the highest bidder. But it's interesting, even with Ray, it very quickly comes up that she won't sell something. Yeah, the first thing she does is sell something, and then her sort of save the cat moment, her first like heroic moment, if saving a cat is not necessary for belief carrying and investing, and I talk about Hunger Games and how like Hunger Games specifically events with her going like, I hate my cat, I want to kill my cat. And then a couple of pages later, she actually does kill a cat. And I'm like, this is the ultimate non-save the cat. But then eventually when she takes her sister's place, that is the moment where she rises above her degraded world. Instead of save the cat, is there a rise above the degraded world moment where Ray refuses to sell BB-8, where Katniss takes her sister's place? Is that one of the things we're doing here is establishing they have tough decisions to make that they have reasons to not do this thing. And then when it sets up, when they sort of break free of the economic world, is that is that something we should talk about? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good break point. Break free of the economic world. Yes, because right now we're talking about, like I think you have to start the main character from the lowest level of Maslow's needs. Um, yes. So you're showing them they're surviving they're 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 doing economic transactions and and then like you can't start with them saying like I am going to go on this spiritual quest to dethrone the devil because I am virtuous like nobody like you can maybe end with that at like the end of the second act you know or something like that or like something that occurs to them in the third act but that can't be it has to start out with them money is changing hands or somebody is doing their job this is something that's expected or it's it's a normal thing and then something causes them to break out of it uh, so, so let, let's let's move on so we we did eat we've done exercise we've done economic activity we're talking about how maybe like when we're getting out of act one we're breaking out of economic activity. I think the fourth E is enjoy. And this is something that I do not see enough. I like to see characters, especially characters who are like on the same side together, enjoying their time together. In Lord of the Rings, when Gandalf shows up and he sees Frodo, one of the first things they do together is they laugh. And then a scene later, they're smoking together. They are friends. They enjoy hanging out together. It's fun. Uh, Anna in Frozen is having fun running around the palace singing to herself, just as any seven-year-old does, like running around the house singing to herself. Uh, Dale... When she imitates the paintings, I think we really love that. When yeah. she is, you know, turning her isolation into a game and she's like, you know, hi, paintings, and she's, you know, having fun imitating them. But exactly. I guess that'll be, the emulate comes next. Uh, uh, Dale Cooper, he loves Twin Peaks. He like says to the Sheriff Truman, tell me about those trees. Like he loves being there. Uh, yeah. He loves, you know, the the pie. He loves the coffee. Like he smells things. He things that the people who actually live there like take for granted. He loves it. Yeah. In the parts of the Caribbean movie, which I've been rewatching all those movies, with my girls. And those movies are great. Jack Sparrow loves being a pirate. It's a great opening scene. For I love character. it. And he's, one of my all-time favorite uh, character introductions. His boat is sinking. We don't know how he's going to get out of this. And then we see him coming in. It looks like he's on the crow's nest or whatever, high on the mast of the boat. And then he kind of steps off onto the pier, but then we realize the boat was sinking the whole time. And he just kind of jauntily steps off the boat as it sinks the final bit, and he, and he kind of is very carefree about it. This guy loves being a pirate. He's not desperate. He's not frantic. This is great for him. Now, Ray, I mean, yeah, yeah Katniss does not enjoy herself. Ray does not enjoy well, herself. But, but here's the thing. Even Katniss, she hangs out with PETA a little bit. And they have a kind of a fun, they have a little picnic on the other side of the fence and they enjoy life. They eat some of the game that she shot. You know, they share a little I guess that's true. Food. They have a moment of friendship, even in that grim story. And I think 
people think that like something that is grim is more serious or more worthwhile and everybody just has to be totally grim and and badass all the time and i think showing people enjoying themselves enjoying each other's company enjoying their activities that really strongly bonds us to them that's yeah. it like, it could be fun to be frodo i could blow smoke rings with gandalf it could be fun to be dale cooper uh it could be fun to be jack sparrow and it could even be fun to be katniss for a moment I guess a little bit. We are in Katniss's head and we know that she is, I think if, if we were watching that security camera footage of Katniss, we would be more inclined to go like, oh, you know, she's having a picnic with a cute guy. Since we're in her head, we know that she is one of the reasons why I think those books are so popular with 13-year-old girls specifically is that she is has these two cute guys who are interested in her and she shows zero interest in them in her head Ever just like in Ray. Those three books. Like, fact, never was. Yeah, she, she is to, like Ray. Even worse, she has to perform interest. She has to perform interest. But, like, when she is with them, boy, she is not swooning over either of those guys ever, even a slight amount. I and wonder I, when J.J. Abrams was, like, they're planning, like, the new sequels, if they're looking at Katniss Everdeen for Ray. Because Ray has zero sexual interest in either Finn or Poe. Yeah, ever. Or, or or Finn or Poe or or Kylo Ren really Kylo Ren is into her but she I guess she does eventually kiss Kylo Ren and it's very unconvincing in the third movie yeah I didn't believe it I, I think she's asexual I don't think she gives a shit but the enjoying life I think is something that people real people do no matter how ground down people are by their worst jobs they find time for a smoke break to enjoy themselves uh, um and I think that that is of the most human thing to do is to seek enjoyment. Even if your life is ground down, maybe that's even the most, the time where you're the most human, that even though it's kind of not in your best interest to enjoy yourself, you're still going to make time to enjoy yourself because that is how you save some scrap of humanity, which I think that's what Katniss and Peter are doing. How does Harry Potter enjoy himself? Uh, he doesn't until he gets to the zoo. Uh, he really enjoys the the Sunday Dudley didn't finish. And even when like, they said, oh, Dudley and his friends are going to go to the zoo, like he thinks, oh, if they go to the zoo and I'm left here alone, maybe I can have a go on Dudley's computer. Like yeah. he, he's already thinking like, oh, maybe I can find some ways to enjoy myself. He's not like a, just a, a dull, plodding, can't no. find anything to do with his life. Like as well, my mom and- would always tell me when I was growing up, I'd say, mom, I'm bored. She would say, Jamie, only boring people get bored. And that's, I- That's an excellent point. There's nothing worse than a bored hero. There's nothing worse than reading about or watching a bored hero. And only boring people get bored. That's an excellent point. And only boring heroes get bored. They need to have an ability to occupy themselves, to think about things, to be engaged with the world. And boy, I tell you, when I read people's manuscripts, whenever the hero gets bored, that is death. More than anything else a writer can do, a bored hero is death. That's an excellent point. And Harry isn't really bored. I mean, I think the number one way Harry enjoys himself is by making snarky little comments about Dudley. (laughs) And he is intentionally pitching beyond the room. He is pitching so that the Dursleys, I think he wants the Dursleys to just barely comprehend that their son is being mocked. And in a way where he's not going to get hit, he's not going to get in trouble. But they're vaguely where he's doing this. Okay, so here's my last one. So we've done eat, exercise, economic activity enjoy and the last one is emulate and this really came together to me when i saw little miss sunshine the other day with my girls one of the first things you see in little miss sunshine 
is Olive alone. We've isolated her. That's the little girl. And she's watching beauty pageant contestants. And they're, they're, they say, and now the new Miss America. And the Miss America like puts her hands to her cheeks and screams. And, and then Olive rewinds it. And she puts her hands to her cheeks and screams in the same way. She's emulating what she wishes she could be. In the same way, in the same movie, we see her father. like, And we see him on stage. It's a tight shot of him. Be to kind of giving a big motivational speech, like you kind of like Tony Robbins, you've heard it a million times. And we think from the way that it's framed that, oh, he must be talking to like hundreds of people. But then we see that he is only talking to like seven people at a community college. He's emulating what he would like to be. Olive is emulating what she would like to be. And we learn much more about seeing what people do, either in private or, you know, with an audience, trying to be what they feel is their ideal self than we do with them saving a million cats. When we see Luke the first time, one of the first things he does is he plays with a spaceship and he flies it around yeah, while he's talking. that's a good point. And, and then the, Ray puts, and actually uh, Lucy pointed this out to me because I was talking through these ideas with her earlier, that Ray puts on a helmet when we first meet her. She's pretending to be a rebel pilot. And so she's emulating what she wants to be. If we see somebody trying to be what they think is their best version of themselves, and either pretending or poignantly failing or or not quite getting there or just doing it for their own funsies, that tells us so much about the character. Okay, well, I think this is a great idea. You did not run this one by me. You're hitting me full in the face, totally unexpected with this. And I think this is a great idea. Instantly, I think of examples of it happening. You know, of course, I can think of examples of it not happening, but I do think- A la carte. Of- a la carte, I do think of Anna and Frozen imitating those paintings, which is talk about a cuttable moment. Talk about something that, you know, it's not like no studio exec's going to go like, you need to imitate some paintings. Like, you know, or you can't cut that. She's imitating paintings now. But I think that that there is, that we do love her at that moment. And there are lots of examples of not people really imitating, imitating she's things. Like putting yourselves in the paintings, in the situations that she would like to be in, situations of true love. You know, that she, like, some man is wooing her or something, right? Yeah, I certainly, I've watched Star Wars a million times. I've seen Luke pick up that little toy plane and fly it around, and and I've never attached any meaning to that. But you're right, we're seeing him putting an object in his hand that shows his hopes and dreams. But this goes both ways. Like, in terms of binding you to a character, watching another character emulate your hero also binds you to the hero. Uh, In The Incredibles, we see the person who ends up being the the villain syndrome is trying to emulate Mr. Incredible, uh, yeah. right? Also in Jaws, and this is not when we first meet Brody. Oh, but, the, his uh, son with the fingers. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't you explain that? So for people Oh, uh, like, yeah, there is, that's one of my favorite moments in Jaws. Is a completely, you can't put it in a screenplay. How would you write that? You know that, yeah. So Brody, uh, the Roy Scheider character in Jaws, the hero, is he's worried and he's at the kitchen table and he's got his fingers interlaced as he's sort of leaning on his interlaced fingers. And then he looks over and sees that his son is imitating him. And maybe his son is mocking him, or maybe his son is going, Okay, this is dad being cool and I'll try to be like my dad, or maybe the son's just doing it completely unconsciously and just going like, you know, how, how should one be in the world? Let's let me watch my father and find out how one should be in the world. One, you know, does this. And it's only when Brody sees his son doing this, that he realizes that he's being overwrought or that he's letting his worries affect his family life. And then he sort of laughs at himself and he stops doing it. And then oh, no, but it's not, but there's more to it than that. He, 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 he sees his son is doing it. And then he slightly changes his fingers. His son slightly oh, changes yes. his fingers. 
he and turns then into he a game. Kind of moves a little bit. The son moves a little bit. Then it becomes a game between them. And then he kind of makes a face. And his son makes a face. And it's just such a sweet and beautiful moment. And it's the complete. It's very true to how children actually are, and not how like children are portrayed in movies as like brats or kids who have one-liners. Like what kids do is like what all humans do is that they imitate. And this like in, in a very kind of punchy and concentrated way shows how parents like affect their children and how intimate you can be with your children. This moment of worry becomes a game, and then he's able to kind of get relieved, uh, and. It, and the, the kid doesn't know what he's worried about. I don't know if the kid knows if anything is wrong at all, but it just becomes this wonderful moment without a line spoken. And it's an incredible moment. Yeah, it's a great moment. I like this idea. I, I think it works. I'm, you know, again, I'm trying to think through our examples. I'm trying to think through Get Out. I'm trying to think through Toy Story. I'm trying to think through standard stuff we always do. Again, they're all cart. You don't have to cards. use them. You don't have to have people buying and selling or toking marijuana or, or, or doing the, the same walk as somebody else or whatever. But I, I think it works. I think these are all really good ideas. And now I want to look for them in everything. Now I want to go ahead and rewatch the first 15 minutes of all of my examples and see if I can find just do a five E's chart to see what I can find in terms of these five E's in uh, in these classic movies and these classic books i think what one of the through lines to this though to eat exercise economic activity enjoy and emulate there's no pretentious or noble or highfalutin motivations early on i almost said no nobility in the first act you know no, like it, no, no 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 i disagree i think that uh, i think that these five are setting you up i think we we started talking about this before let's talk more about this i think that these five are setting you up for the moment you break out of this mundanity from yes. the moment you break out of this, which happens, I think, within the first 10 minutes. I think Ray refusing this OBB-8, we understand what a big deal that is for her to refuse this OBB-8 because we've seen how much hand-to-mouth she's been living and how valuable it would be to her to sell BB-8. It would solve all of her problems, and yet she's yeah. unwilling to do it. We've seen that Katniss is extremely someone who— she looks you know, after herself. Yeah, we see the cast as someone who sort of sneers at the whole idea of nobility, and and then she suddenly does this entirely self-sacrificing thing where she agrees to sign up for the Hunger Games to take her sister's place. She is rising up above herself in a way she did not seem like she was capable of doing. What are other examples of this? Let's see if we can develop your rule in terms of they have this very realistic, mundane life, and then there's the break from mundanity. That's what I'm calling it, even though that's even though I don't think mundanity is a word. They have the break from mundanity. This isn't quite crossing the threshold. The break from mundanity is before that, you're saying. It's about rising above petty concerns. For Luke, it would be taking the inhibitor bolt off of R2. But he does that absentmindedly, though. Uh, But he does it... He does it utterly absent. Like, C-3PO says, take it off. He takes it off. He's like, hey, bring it back. And he's like, and then (laughs) Luke, come here. He's like, oh, okay, we'll see what you can do with them. Like, he... It's a thoughtless action. Can we just put the audio in right now? Yeah, okay, I'll put the audio in. He says the restraining bolt has short-circuited his recording system. He suggests that if you remove the bolt, he might be able to play back the entire recording. Hmm? Oh, yeah, well... I guess you're too uh, small to run away on me if I take this off. Okay. There you go. Yeah, I agree, but I think that that is 
subconscious. I don't think it has to be a conscious moment. I don't think it has to be like, I'm going to stand up and do what's right. I think it just has to be a matter of, you know, he has seen this princess and he's seen this princess, this loop of this princess, and he wants to see more. He has made this difficult economic decision to buy these droids and then to oil them up and then to put their bolts on. And then he says, I'm going to take the bolt off. I'm going to go ahead and break my contract with my uncle by taking this bolt no, off. It is I, completely thoughtless. It is thoughtless. I agree. It is thoughtless. But it is the, you know, we all know what the consequences of that action are. And he is making, he has broken that bond in his brain when he does it, even though he doesn't realize it. Hard to disagree. Uh, (laughs) uh, He is a thoughtless child who uh, is like, he literally says, what? Oh, 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 yeah, okay. He is unintentionally, unthinkingly crossing a Rubicon. He is crossing from the world of economic self-interest to the world of a higher calling. Unintentionally making a decision is not really making a decision. He's, oh, but I he's, think it could be very... There's a true character moment. He's making a decision when he says, there's nothing for me here. I want oh, to yeah. become a Jedi my father. Like, that's that is when we... turning point as a character. But, I mean, for Rey, I would say when she doesn't sell BB-8, that's not really her turning point as a character yet. But I would say it's a, it's a big moment for her. In that case, it's a much more costs, conscious moment. It costs nothing for Luke to say... Oh, what? Oh, yeah, okay. But it costs everything for Ray to say, no, I'm not going to sell the Rubit. So I, I disagree with her. Well, let's, so let's talk about Maslow's Pyramid. I've talked about Maslow on my blog in my book. So this was Abraham Maslow. Here's a fun fact. Did you know that Abraham Maslow is also the person who said the quote, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail? I did not know that. Yes. Anyway, he talked about, I talked about how you could base the structure of your story on different psychological models. And one of them I talked about is, especially in a story of survival, how you could make your way up the pyramid. So Abraham Maslow created this thing called, he called the hierarchy of needs, which was a little pyramid and talks about how, how we have to satisfy one need before we can move on to a higher need. And so the bottom of the pyramid is physiological needs, air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing, reproduction. Then the next step up is safety needs. It's weird they would put reproduction there because people would go for safety and love and belonging before they go for reproduction, but go on. It's true. Safety, personal security, employment, resources, health, property. Then you move up to the next thing, which is love and belonging, friendship, intimacy, family, sense of connection. Then you, only then once you have that, can you move up to the next one, which is esteem, respect, self-esteem, status, recognition, strength, freedom. And then finally, the pinnacle of the pyramid, which you can really only reach once you've done the other four, is self-actualization. And I've talked about how, like, this is an underrated way of structuring your story. I talked about on the blog for years, and I think I mentioned, no, I don't think this is in the book at all. But so you're saying that every movie, to a certain extent, is about climbing Maslow's pyramid. So that's one reason why you want us to begin with economic activity. I I think I want to begin with that because it's, it's, it's very visceral and real. However, I've always disagreed with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Because anybody who's read Dostoevsky or Kierkegaard or anybody like that, or even has any passing knowledge of human nature knows this is not true. People will do things for self-actualization that will completely be at odds with their safety or physiological or even love and belonging or whatever. People will all the time do things that completely, even if they don't have their safety taken care of, they'll do things for esteem. Even if they don't have their love and belonging taken care of, they'll do something for self-actualization. I don't agree with this pyramid. Uh, I don't think that's how human human nature actually works. However, I do feel that in a story, it's helpful to start 
with the bare facts of survival and then build up from there. Yeah. So I feel that just in general, people do things for esteem that betray love, belonging, safety, physiological. I mean, we could we, we could see all I the agree, time. Right? But that's unhealthy, right? So Maslow is saying, like, like, oh, so he's, he's like. There's, here's the one way you can build a castle. And, and by the way, well, uh, but wait a second. I All the other castles saying. I see in the world are built differently. Yes, but this is the right way. Uh, of the, but, but there's all these other I castles think, that are built differently. Right. I mean, I think that's, isn't that the whole job of a psychiatrist is to, you know, say Make like, hey, here's a model to hold people to. Here's a healthier way to live. I mean, you know, I also talked about how you could structure your screenplay around Kuba Ross's stages of grief, and those you can do in any order too. But I think she's saying this is not only the most common way of doing it, but also the healthiest way of doing it. I think is what she is describing, and I think that you know it's it's better to get your denial out of the way early, and I think that he's saying oh, it's better to take care of your physiological needs before you start moving on to love, it's, you know, a huge mistake for people to go like, we're going to live on love. I'm going to marry this guy without being able to take care of my own needs first. And I think that he's saying, yes, this is the most common way of progressing. And it's also the healthiest way of progressing. And I think that's what Cooper Ross is saying too. I don't think either of them would say this is an immutable law of the universe. I think in many cases, the only way to to actually achieve self-actualization is to betray one of those first four. Well, see, that's interesting. I think that I'm not sure Maslow would disagree with you. And I think that brings us back around to these stories to a certain extent. That is a key moment in a story is I have to, certainly I have to put my safety at risk. I have to climb up the pyramid, even if- More than at risk, you have to throw away your safety and live in unsafety. Like it's not just I putting it at risk. It's like I've closed a door and safety is no longer an option. Yeah, your pyramid is inverted now. Your uh, your pyramid is crumbling from the bottom up as you're climbing the ladder. This does not make sense to me dramatically, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, only in terms of the idea of it's more compelling for people to have visceral economic hunger survival needs at the beginning. Something visceral about that, I understand that. The rest of it is gobbledygook to me. In terms of the human nature that I have seen. You, I did not bring up Maslow, buddy. You brought up Maslow. You were the one talking <laughs> about, you were the one modeling behavior on Maslow. And now and now suddenly I'm the Maslowian buffoon who is uh, trying to <laughs> force feed you this problem. So um, do you have any, I mean, just to backtrack a little bit, like other like iconic examples, since you already have a thing on your checklist that's about this, what other things pop out to you? I can open it up. Let's open it up. Certainly an education. Should we see her lugging a cello? <laughs> and, okay, uh, but, that, that, but that is moving a heavy object. Yes, think very Doing much. something active is not enough. Yeah, she's got this burden, which the guy then offers to take off her, you know, lift off her. She's in the rain. She's looking at Joe in the lane. And then the guy is like, uh, you sure I can't give you a ride? And she's like, no. And it's like, can I just give your cello a ride? Because I'm a big fan of music. That makes her vulnerable. And do the right thing. He's counting money. That's the very first thing we see him do is counting money. Buying and selling. Very much so. The fire, the first thing we see them doing is they're raking gravel on the street. And then suddenly the brother is like, no, let's hang out. Let's go high five a black guy. Let's go walk around. Let's dance around <laughs> in the street. You know, the fugitive is an example where he's a sort of joyless guy. He tells his wife he would rather be alone with her, but he is at a party. And he is at least making it clear that he loves his wife. She sort of gets a little laugh out of him and talks about how handsome he is with a beard. And so just a little bit. All right. So I'm looking at how to train your dragon. He's 
at a shop. He's working at his job at a shop when his place gets attacked and he's told, do not leave the shop, which is I think a key moment for, you know, that's sort of the way we start with so many of these things of like, do not leave your job, do not leave your desk, do not leave your, and then he says, no, I'm going to run out. I'm going to be a hero. I'm going to take something that I made at my job. I made this dragon catching device at my job and I'm going to wheel it out of here and I'm going to run out and I'm going to try to catch my own dragon, even though if it means losing my job, leaving my place. Again, I think there's that moment. There's that moment of, you know, like I'm stuck in this economic activity. I'm stuck in this economic relationship and I'm going to break free of it. And that's sort of when the story begins. I feel like the one thing, yeah, we never really nailed this concept of rising above it, but maybe breaking with, certainly in Blazing Saddles, he's told by his buddy, don't do it. Don't, we need this job. Do not attack the person who is, it begins with, (laughs) So Blazing Saddles begins with, you know, they're working on the railroad, they're miserable, they're not enjoying themselves, and then their boss is upset with them for not enjoying themselves while they're working on the railroad. And he says, you know, gee, back when you guys were slaves, you used to be always singing these songs, why can't you sing a song? And then he smirks, he smiles, he's not going to enjoy themselves in the way they want him to, instead he sings Cole Porter's I Get No Kick From Champagne, which Uh infuriates his bosses more, and then his, I forget what exactly it is his boss does, And then he's got a shovel in his hand and his friend says, don't do it. You know, don't hit him on the back of the head with a shovel. What's going on? Do you remember this? I've never seen Blazing Saddles. (laughs) What? Never seen it. What? Never seen it. (laughs) What? Are are you serious? So, all right. So you... Never seen it. Let's back the fuck up here. How have you never seen Blazing Saddles? Uh, don't care for it. How do you know you don't care for it? Um, <laughs> you have no idea. You've never seen it. I heard there's a farting oh, scene in it. I heard you, a farting scene in you it. are in for a treat, my friend. I, remember, <laughs> I was listening to some podcast. I think it was Dan Harmon's podcast. And they were talking about, like, there was a screening of Blazing Saddles at one of those like Alamo draft houses or whatever in Los Angeles. And it was hilarious because everybody who was like Gen X was laughing their asses off and all the millennials and Generation Zs like hated it because really? it, it, it does things with race that you can't do anymore. It was, a, it was the point they were making on the uh, on the podcast. It's like, I, even, even if it's like something that is in the long haul, a progressive point that they're making, they're doing it in a kind of transgressive way that people go automatically go, oh, and they don't yeah. let you make do it. D- does that make sense? I haven't seen I, the movie. Yes, but that maybe the maybe the most transgressive movie ever made. In fact, and yeah, no, we certainly have pulled back from that now. In Blazing Saddles, which you have never seen, he has this job he desperately needs, and at some point he decides I'm going to hit my boss with a shovel. And his friend, who he has the job with, is like, "Don't do it, don't do it." And he's like, "I got to do it, I got to do it." And I feel like that's something that is in a lot of movies. I think most heroes have a moment where they break out of their job. They break out of their base economic relations early on. And I think that that is certainly for Ray, that is her first turning point. So, okay. So, all right. I think we have had a great discussion. I'm loving your five E's. We're having some very minor disagreements, but I think we're both basically on the same page here. This is just a low conflict episode where you're tossing out great stuff and I'm eating it up and eating is a very important thing. (laughs) All right. All right. So there we go. We we did it. Great job. We've done it. We've done it. We rock. So I don't think we're going to do a free story idea this episode because we've gone way in depth. We've got a lot of stuff. I'm going to have a hard time cutting this down to less than an hour. I'm hoping that people in the comments 
can say either other things that they feel that a la carte can help us get on the, the side of the hero that aren't save the cat, uh, but maybe like something similar to these five E's or examples that they see that these five E's are honored or maybe even things in which like, you know, these five E's are dishonored. That would be great. Please go to secretsofstory.com. I'm going to have an entry page for this podcast and please go to the comments and add those there. Okay, this has been a wonderful evening, James. I will talk to you soon. Let's do another podcast sooner than it sooner than we got around to doing this one. Go and sin no more. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com slash secretsofstory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Hannon Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.